Good morning. Uh, as Derek said, my name is Dan Christensen. I'm one of the elders here, and it's my privilege to continue in uh, Pastor Derek's series through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 this morning, if you want to turn there. If you missed last week's message, um, you missed an outstanding sermon that Pastor Derek gave on the Gospel. I mentioned to a few people this week that I thought it was one of the best sermons I've heard at Faith Free. So I encourage you to listen to that if you missed it. And as he was getting toward the end of the sermon, I was sitting over here with my family, and I just prayed a short prayer to the Lord, and I just said, God, thank you for sending our church a pastor who is passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was my first thought. My second thought is, oh great, I have to follow this. Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read our passage this morning, which is verses 21 through 39. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame sped everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The first thing I'd like to do is I'd like to locate this passage geographically to show you something that I think is very interesting. So uh, this is the region of Galilee. You see the Sea of Galilee there in blue and Capernaum in the northwest corner. That's the location where our passage takes place. There's been some fascinating archaeology to happen in this location in the last few decades. This is the site of the, the synagogue and of Peter's mother-in-law house that we read about in our passage. This is the aerial view, uh, the, the, the white stone building. I'll show you a close-up of that in a moment. Is the actual location of the synagogue. Those aren't the walls of the synagogue, but that's the location of the synagogue. 
And then next to the sea, you see that building that looks like it has kind of a circular uh, roof to it. That is, the, that is thought to be the location of Peter's mother-in-law's house. So this is uh, the synagogue. This, this, uh, the first century synagogue was built over, and this stone, this white stone, was imported probably in the 4th or 5th century is what historians think. And so that's when you go to the location, that's what you're actually touring, a synagogue that dates to the 4th or 5th century after Christ. But interestingly, in the late 60s, there was some excavation done at this location. I think they were digging trenches or something like that uh, around this around this structure just for preservation's sake, and they found something very interesting. Do you see the difference in the, in the, the, of the color of stone in that wall? How the, the stone on the top part, uh, the larger stone, is, is white in color, and then you have that lower part that is uh, gray in color. That gray stone was first discovered in the late 1960s, just a few decades ago, and the best guess that historians have is that stone actually dates to this first century synagogue that we read about. So if you're like, you kind of nerd out on things like this like I do, I look at that, that stone and I think, you know, I notice like some, there's some bigger stones and larger stones and there's different patterns and I kind of wonder, did Jesus lay his eyes on those stones and think similar thoughts? Or when he rebukes the demons in our passage, I like to think, did, did, the, did the sound waves of his voice actually ricochet off those very stones? This is the location where the first scene in our passage happens. So let's, let's move on now, and let me say a few things about the literary context of our passage. One thing you may have noticed if you've been here for Derek's earlier sermons is that Mark is a gospel writer that moves very, very quickly in his storytelling. This, uh, the first part of Mark, the first chapter of Mark is, in my opinion, one of the more difficult passages to preach, and Derek's done a great job with it, but because Mark skips through stories so quickly, uh, one of his favorite words, Mark says, one of his favorite words is, is immediately. You notice in Mark 1, verse 10, Jesus came out of the water and immediately he saw the heavens torn open. You see in verse 12, after the, in the temptation, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. In our passage, you see that in verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. And look at verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house. So that word really characterizes Mark as a whole. He's just, he's very quick to get from story to story. He's very fast-paced in his, in his narrative as compared to other gospel writers. So let me just give you a contrast with the gospel writer that is the most... Um, slow and takes the most time in telling his stories, and that would be Luke. So Derek has, to this point in the series, covered 20 verses. To tell these exact same stories, what Mark says in 20 verses, Luke says in 225 verses. So it's, it makes for a fast pace, but if you're trying to teach it, it presents some unique challenges. So why in our passage this morning does he slow down for the first time? Why, unlike the first 20 verses, does he really get inside the scenes 
that we read about in verses 21 through 39. And I think it has to do with the message of the passage, which in a word is authority. We're going to be talking about the authority of Jesus Christ. We find that word in our passage, I think maybe two or three or four times we read it. Um, But that's how I see these three scenes, these three stories being connected together. I think the theme is the authority of Christ. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning by way of application. Just like the Bible says we cannot have two masters, we can also not have two authorities. Just recognize, just think the definition of authority. That's a contradiction in terms to talk about having two different authorities. We either have Jesus as our authority or something or someone else, period. There's no third option. Bruce Ware, who is an author and theologian, I think describes it uh, better, better than I could. And so I'll just read you this, what he says about authority. He says, we live in a culture that despises authority at every level whether the authority of police or of government or of parents or a husband's authority in marriage or pastoral authority in churches, our culture has programmed us to despise authority. We find it hard to think positively about authority for one very simple reason. We are sinners who want to be in charge of our own lives. We want to be captains of our own destiny. We want to govern our own futures. If we want to be followers of Christ, remember Derek's theme, one of his running themes in the first 20 verses, his first three or four messages, is that followers of Jesus follow Jesus. If we want to be followers of Christ, we must submit to his authority. And this is so important to Mark, he slows down for the first time in his gospel to stress it. Submitting to the authority and lordship of Christ is not optional for a disciple of Christ. In our passage, there are, as I've organized it to to talk about it this morning, there's three areas where we see the authority of Christ. So this is is where I'm, I'm taking you as we go through the passage. We see it in his teaching, we see it in his rebuking, and we see it in his praying. We see it in his teaching, in his rebuking, and in his praying. So number one, Jesus' authority is heard in his teaching. Our passage mentions several times the powerful teachings of Christ. Our passage is actually bookended by messages, by statements about Jesus' teaching. In verses 21 and 22, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Look at verses 38 and 39, how the passage ends. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, so that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And for um, in this passage, I think that the teaching and the preaching are synonymous ideas in how Mark is describing Jesus' ministry. Also, look at verse 27. We see it again. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. In the four Gospels, Jesus is directly addressed by other people 90 times. By believers, by unbelievers, by men, women, lay people, religious leaders. He's directly addressed 90 times in the Gospels. 60 of those times, he is addressed as teacher. 
teacher. How do we inherit eternal life? He's addressed as teacher, which tells us this is a fundamental to who Jesus is, this role of a teacher. He came in part to give information to people who needed information. Notice the end of verse 22. Mark has this uh, pretty fascinating phrase when he doesn't just say they're teaching, but he says he taught them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. Not as the scribes. So in the first century, the scribes were the professional teachers, and they had uh, tremendous education, and they had cultural prestige to the point that if you were outside at a market and there were a couple of scribes walking down the road, everybody would stand to the side in respect of the scribes. Another example, that if a scribe were to go to a teaching moment, say in a synagogue, and they enter the room, everybody, by cultural obligation, everybody is to rise for the scribe. That is the kind of professional teacher they are. Now, when I make a good point in my Sunday school class, nobody's parting ways in the hallway when I walk down. We don't do that for our teachers today, so it's a little bit foreign to us. I, probably some of my friends will do that now that I said that, but... With, we don't do that with sincerity, anyway. <laughs> Jesus, though, is not wowing the crowds with education or with funny illustrations. Jesus is wowing the crowd because he is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And in the... the passage, the verses on his temptation in verses 1, Mark 1, 9 through 11, we know that the Spirit descended on him, so he is God in the flesh, indwelled by the Spirit, and verse 12, verse 11 says, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So how is Jesus wowing the crowds? Because he is God in the flesh, indwelled by the Spirit, with the favor of the Father, and his teaching is powerful. It is powerful. So if Jesus came to us as a teacher, then we need to come before him as a student. At the heart of a growing, maturing, devoted follower of Christ is an eager and enthusiastic student. Now, being a disciple is a type of student, but being a disciple has nothing to do with uh, IQs or GPAs or formal degrees. It's nothing like that. Being a student of Jesus Christ is being devoted to his teachings, being devoted to his authoritative teachings and living them out. 2 John 9 says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching, teaching has both the Father and the Son. That word abide in the Greek implies a continuing action. It's not something we learn once and then we're done with it. We're continually permeating ourselves with the teachings of Christ. I think the NIV says continue in the teachings of Christ to try and get that idea across that this is an ongoing thing. 
I recently learned a lesson about this in my own personal life. I have, uh, a few years ago, I started a, a Bible reading plan that I thought, I felt the Lord calling me to do, and it's just, it's a ton of reading. And I, I wake up at five o'clock in large part just to be able to, to get it in. It's, it's through the Bible in a year, but then you're reading uh, several books twice in the span of a year, and it's just a lot, but I just felt the Lord calling me to do it. And uh, so a lot of you know that as of a few months ago, I have four children now. And uh, <laughs> that was just spontaneous there. Um, I was thinking the other day, there should be some kind of deal where if God gives you number four, he has to add on more hours to your day. Like if you get number four, now you have 30-hour days. But it doesn't work like that. So the quiet times in my house are before everyone gets up and after everyone goes to sleep. But after everyone goes to sleep, I'm, I'm about worthless, so... So I get up early, and so and I'm always trying to find time. One of the mo- and I'm just in that phase of life where one of my most valuable commodities is not, um, is not money. It's time. I need time. I have four kids. I need time. And so I'm always looking for different ways to, to try and get more time. So I thought up this way where I would make my Bible reading a little easier, a little more convenient. So I started this new routine in the morning, and... About a month into it, I just, I had to be honest with myself. I am just not getting, I'm still doing the reading, but I'm not getting out of it what I was before. So I switched back. And I, and I, I, I just learned this really important lesson, that abiding in the teachings of Christ is not about making it easy. It's not about making it convenient. We, 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 we have those priorities in the church today, and it's wrong. You know, Throw in other things in there too. We're just, we want easy. We want entertainment. We want all these things. The Bible, the Bible's not interested in those things. The goal of a Bible reading, as I, as I talk about it, is, is that as we work our way through the Bible, the Bible works its way through us. That's not always easy or convenient. So abiding in the teaching of Christ will, will come with sacrifice, I'm convinced, if we're doing it properly. Number two. Jesus' authority is demonstrated in his rebuking. Uh, we see at least three or four different places where this is the case uh, in our passage this morning. We see that Jesus demonstrates authority in the physical realm. He does this in part by healing sickness in the second scene of our passage, and in the spiritual realm by casting out demons. And I want to elaborate for a minute on that spiritual war aspect. So we see that Mark makes a few general statements about Jesus and spiritual warfare. For example, verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That last phrase, I think, is just to protect from misinformation. Uh, demons don't make great ambassadors for truth, as I think uh, is what Jesus is getting at there. But the second general statement, verse 39, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. There's another general reference. There might be spiritual warfare going on in verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And the reason why I say might is because in Luke's account of the same story, he says that Jesus rebuked the fever in Luke 4. He says Jesus rebuked the fever. That word that's translated rebuked is only 
only occurs in, in passages that have to do with exorcism. So some scholars say maybe, maybe there's uh, spiritual warfare going on there. In, in my view, that's, that's inconclusive. I'm not sure about that. Maybe it's going on there. The, the, the passage where we get the most information about spiritual warfare is uh, in the first scene. Uh, let's see. Uh, verse 23, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing, convulsing him and cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Notice that Jesus doesn't even initiate that conversation. He doesn't even initiate that dialogue. He's just present, and he's teaching with authority, indwelled by the Spirit, with the favor of the Father, and that seems to incite panic in the demons. Wherever Jesus is, evil is getting confronted. We can either cooperate with that, or we, not, we do not cooperate with that based on our choices. The demons also even identify Jesus correctly. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. That's quite the admission by sinister spirits, the Holy One of God. It reminds of James chapter 2 where it says, he says, even demons believe. Even demons believe. So in part they have their theology uh, correct, but obviously they're not disciples of Christ or following Christ. I think demons know even the truth of the song we just sang. I love that song. I love the lyric. I wrote it down. The enemy, he has to flee at the sound of your great name. Remember that line? That's a great line. I love that line. The enemy, he has to flee at the sound of your great name. Jesus, worthy is the lamb, goes on. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We have switched authorities. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have switched authorities. To a kingdom belongs a king. And a king has authority and his subjects are to obey him. C.S. Lewis, I think, gives us great wisdom on dealing with spiritual warfare in the Christian life. Even just as we think about it this morning, as you think about it in relation to your own life, C.S. Lewis says there's two extremes that we want to avoid. On the one extreme, we don't want to be obsessed with demons and be thinking about them all the time and focused on them and not on the Lord. That's an error. On the other extreme, we don't want to be completely ignorant either. We don't want to completely ignore their existence because Jesus didn't, Paul didn't. So we have to find that middle ground between being completely obsessed and then indifferent or ignoring them. And let me give you an example of each. I was reached, um, you know who David Blaine is? He's a musician, or musician. He might be a musician, but he's a magician is what he's known for, and, uh, or like an illusionist. And I was watching one of his, his uh, clips on YouTube and he, so he does the trick, and everybody's wowed and everything, and it's great. And then the next video, there's another video on that same trick. And it's this guy who put this video up, and at the bottom, he's commentating on the trick that David Blaine's doing. He's, he's, he's written down commentary on it, and, he's, saying, and, he's, and, he's, and he's, he's assigning all the magic to demons. 
You say, now the demon is telling David Blaine it's a seven of clubs or whatever the, whatever the trick was. Like, this is, this is kind of out there. And there was another video, the next video, the third video I watched about that trick was a complete explanation of the trick. It was like the behind the scenes, like here's how he did it. So this sec guy, whoever put this second video up, is like, oh, it's all demons, it's all demons. And then the next video was actually, it's just, you know, whatever it was, sleight of hand or whatever it was. So the first guy just sees demons where they're not. Or the second guy just saw demons where they're not. There's too much focus, too much if, if I can't figure it out, then I'm just going to blame demons. C.S. Lewis, war- and I agree with him, warns, we, we can't be that focused and obsessed with demons. On the other, let me give you an example on the other extreme too. Being completely ignorant of, of uh, demons and spiritual warfare is also a dangerous place to be according to scripture. There was this uh, scholar who, who died uh, maybe 20 years ago. His name was Merrill Unger. Uh, he was really well known for writing Unger's Bible Dictionary, I think is what it called. But he went on this incredible journey, um, just intellectual faith journey, um, when he was a Christian as a scholar in relation to demons. Now I'm going to show you some book covers. I'm not recommending these. I'm just kind of give them to you as an illustration. In 1952, Unger wrote uh, this book called Biblical Demonology. And he argued on this end of the spectrum, saying uh, demons aren't really that powerful in our life. They're not active, especially in Christian lives. They're, 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 they're impotent. They're, we don't have to be, pay any mind to them and, and so forth. And so he argued that case. But what happened in the next few decades is that he had, um, uh, he started to read the Bible differently. He started to have experiences that were different than what he talked about in that book. He started missionary friends. He's got some great stories about missionary friends calling him and telling him, I love you, but you're totally, totally wrong on this point. So then as a few decades later, he wrote these two books, Demons in the World Today and What Demons Can Do to Saints. And he says at the beginning of those books, what he wrote in 1952 is completely wrong. He completely changed his mind. Now, what's really interesting in uh, academics and scholarly circles is that um, for a certain amount of time in the 70s and 80s, if you wanted to argue that demons are really impotent, they're not really effective in our life, you go to Merrill Lunger's book. And on the other side of the argument, if you want to argue, actually, they are pretty active, we need to be mindful of them, you go to the other Merrill Unger books. And so I always thought it was funny if, if, if two people got in a conversation about it. It's like, oh, yeah, Merrill Unger says this. Oh, yeah, well, Merrill Unger 1971 says that. It's like Merrill Unger versus Merrill Unger. Uh, so what, is, so what is that middle ground? If we're avoiding uh, indifference and ignorance, and if we're trying to avoid complete obsession, what's that middle ground? And if I, we could debate on the word, but the word I'm going to put to it is awareness. Is awareness. And um, Gary Brashears, who um, some of you know, he's been teaching systematic theology at Western Seminary since 1980. And he was at our summer series, spoke at our summer series last year. And he's coming back this year, actually. Um, he was my advisor in, in seminary. And when, when we taught theology, I, just, I always remember his analogy. He says uh, that demons are like rattlesnakes. You need to know enough to stay away. And so the word I put to that is awareness. I think that's, that's where we want to land. So if um, Louis spoke on Uganda 
in the hour before this uh, in my Sunday school class, and he's, he's mentioned Uganda um, a few times and the spiritual warfare that goes on there. And it's, I really encourage you, if Louis has taken an opportunity to share about Uganda, uh, go listen to him. Um, and what he says about spiritual warfare is completely different than our culture. And there are many parts of the Ugandan church that I would say they're behind from where we are. But one thing that they're out ahead on, I think they have a clear focus on, is a spiritual warfare. I think they have, based on what Louis has said, shared so far, I think what they have a more biblical worldview on spiritual warfare than we do. So when we're dealing with these sins that are wreaking havoc in the church from, from materialism to pornography, we must be aware of the demonic forces that are at work and live in the victory that Jesus has won for us on the cross. Number three, Jesus' authority is grounded in his praying. We see this in the last passage where Jesus goes by, goes by himself to pray. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark says that Jesus went and uh, found a solitary place to pray. So with Jesus, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry involved a, a rhythm of prayer. Outwardly, Jesus is connecting with people in the Gospels. Inwardly, he he's, he's never loses connection with the Father by means of his prayer life. Why is that? Because the Father is the source of Jesus' authority. The Father is the source of Jesus' authority. Prayer grounds Jesus in that authority and equips him to go out and minister, whether it's confronting demons or healing people, or making converts. So Jesus' inner life drove his outward mission. Those two things go together. Jesus' inner life drove his outward mission, and his outward mission was, we could say, fueled by his inner life. Prayer anchors us in the authority of Christ. You just think about praying and going to asking the Lord for things or asking for help or confession. You're expressing, in, you're expressing dependence. You're expressing um, humility. You're expressing need. And those things anchor us in the, te- in the authority of Christ. Prayer is to kneel in submission to the Lord. Concluding, concluding comment, concluding story. A few weeks ago, my wife came to me, and she had um, just had some prayer time with, with our seven-year-old, Chase. And um, so Aaron's telling me this story. So their, their routine is, is, um, involves prayer before bed. And so Chase, he's seven, so he, he says to my wife, Aaron, he says, um, he says, Mom, you're going to hear me pray something different tonight. And Aaron says, okay. So they pray. Instead of praying for school or other things uh, that Chase prays for, he said, Jesus, I, I open up my heart to you. And Jesus, I want you to come into my heart. And I want to follow you. So they get done praying, and Aaron says, where'd you hear that? Or who encouraged you to say that? Chase said, I, I just made it up, Mom. Now, he didn't just make it up, because we're not born knowing the gospel. He got it from somewhere. He either got it from home, he got it from church, or he got it from school. He just didn't remember. But what's fascinating to me about that, in part, 
is that um, he's seven. If you, if you asked him right now what he had for breakfast this morning, he, he probably couldn't remember. But at some point, at home, at church, or at school, he remembered someone talking to him about the gospel. And then he remembered that night at prayer time that he wanted to pray that prayer. That's what blows me away about that, that, he, that somehow it stayed on his heart and mind, and he accepted the Lord. So as, a, as his father, as a disciple maker, just not in, just in ministry, but just in my household as a disciple maker, um, what do I think about that? What, what, you know, how, do, how do I understand that? What I consider it is, is a, you know, it's a moment that I'll remember forever, right? But what I consider it to be is a great beginning. He's out of the block strong, and now he has a race to run. I want him to move from decision to devotion. I want him to move from decision to devotion. I want him to move from accepting Jesus that day to accepting Jesus every day. Choosing Jesus that day to choosing Jesus every day. That's what I want for my son. I want him to have Jesus as a friend, but I also want him to submit to his authority as Lord. Why? Because we cannot progress in discipleship without Jesus' lordship. If we want to be followers of Christ, we must submit to his authority. Let's pray. God, this is a challenging passage. It is a challenging teaching, in large part because we are very easily identify with Bruce Ware's words that we want to be in charge of our own lives. We want to be captains of our own destiny. We want to do things our own way. It is hard to let go of that sometimes. But I pray for anybody who is convicted along these lines. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to take that step of faith. Help them to do that trust fall into your ways and into your will. May they relinquish their own control this morning and live in surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Out of my bond, sorrow and night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come, into thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my wanting into thy wealth out of my sin and into thyself jesus i come to thee jesus i come to thee out of my
you stand with us now? Jesus, I come to Thee Out of unrest and arrogant pride Jesus, I come Jesus, I come Into Thy blessed will to abide Jesus, I come to Thee Self to dwell in thy love, out of despair into raptures above, upward forever on wings like a dove. Jesus, I come to thee. Jesus, I come to thee. Out of the Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come Into the joy and light of thy home Jesus, I come to thee Out of the depths of ruin untold Into the peace of thy sheltering Sacco